0: Hello, everyone. This is Bonfire Madigan. We're not crazy. The system is. Tune into the Radical Mental Health Show hosted by the Freedom Center, Wednesday nights, 6 to 7 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning into Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. Uh, we are sponsored by the Freedom Center. Check out freedom-center.org. And now co-sponsored by Icarus Project. Check out the theicarusproject.net. This week, we are going to a report from the Intar Conference in Killarney, Ireland. Last year, I interviewed about 12 people talking about international efforts going on in a number of different countries to create alternative spaces for dealing with people going through psychosis, severe mental illness, people who are dealing with extreme distress, um, alternatives to the mainstream hospitalization and medication model. So let's go to that report.
2: Hi, I'm uh, Rufus May. I'm living in West Yorkshire. I'm from London originally. Inter- It's a growing international network of people interested in alternative approaches to healing and recovery from states of madness. It's been an important meeting for me to network with other people with similar passions to change things and to be with people through these states and allow them to express themselves and find the meaning in those psychotic states, alternative states, dream states, call them what you will. It is very exciting for me uh, to meet with other people, um, doing similar things and trying to set up projects that support people with less medicine, with more compassion. 60 people are in time. We've got people from Canada, uh, America, Alaska, Britain, Turkey, Scandinavia, Germany, and we've plans to expand that network even further across the, across the globe. And network with other people, because uh, this, this is a global resistance movement.
3: I'm Gisela Sartori, and I live in the northwestern corner of Canada, and I uh, started an organization there, which is called the Second Opinion Society, which is a grassroots community organization devoted to expose the abuses in the mental health system and to fight against involuntary treatment. Uh, forced drugging and electroshock and seclusion and restraints and to develop alternatives to the mental health system. I I think the mental health system is really oppressive. I am totally against force and most of uh, the normal mental health system is based on force. The system is totally describing to the medical model of mental illness, which says that mental illness is a chemical imbalance in, in the brain and should be treated with, you know, uh, with drugs and electroshock and other medical uh, interventions. I believe strongly that what people are going through is emotional and spiritual distress, and that these are human experiences, and that we need human solutions and not medical solutions for the human experience. What happens to people when they are in big distress is that they lose the connection to themselves and others. And what psychiatry does, it isolates people from each other, it totally suppresses What's going on with people, and moves them farther, farther away from finding solution to their problems, so instead of helping people express their pain because I think at the core is people having pain that they can deal can deal with. I am very strongly against medication. I grew up in a family that always, from little on, only went to homeopathic doctors. I think that I'm sitting here today talking with you like I do, has a lot to do that because of my parents believing in alternative kind of ways of, of healing, I didn't really get too damaged by the pharmacology of psychiatry. In the place that I'm running in the Yukon, we have a clear policy that we are there to advocate for other ways of dealing with distress. We have a pretty strong stance against drugging people. That does not mean there aren't people coming to us who are on psychiatric drugs. We believe that people should have choices, and we do what we can to show people that there are better, less damaging solutions for them. In the 20s, I tried to commit suicide more than 50 times, and I only ended up in a psych ward once after one of those suicide attempts, being put in restraints and one night into the isolation cell. For me, my experience with psychiatry is not so much that one hospitalization, but being threatened over years. When I was screaming out my pain about all the emotional abuse that I was suffering in my family, of being locked up in the state institution, that was always the threat. As soon as I expressed my pain, we will lock you up. I work a lot with First Nations people, and I work a lot with young First Nation men who get diagnosed with schizophrenia. And what I really experience talking to them is what they are really struggling with is finding their place in the world, coming to terms with who they are. It's all about kind of finding their own identity and kind of the search for their authentic self. And what they are told is that it's a chemical imbalance and that they have to take these drugs for the rest of the li- of their lives. And, yeah, for me, it's more about finding meaning in life, uh, struggling with these existential issues that we all have to struggle with. We have been in existence for 15 years now, and no one has tried to commit suicide. We have had no major crisis at all. And the reason for it is that it's a place for people to be open to be to be supportive of each other. It's a place of non-intrusion. We, we don't call people clients. People are people who come to our place. We don't have files. We don't believe into diagnosing people. When I heard about the first intermeeting that I was invited to, I was really really delighted because I think it's really really important for us to connect. Uh, because there are so many groups all over the world isolated from each other. And for us to get together and support each other and encourage each other is so, so vital. Inter for me is so important because a lot of what we are talking about, like recovery, and has been now co-opted by the system. And there are a lot of groups using these words that we came up with and these concepts and doing the old suppressive mental health crap and and for us to come up uh, to come together and talk about what are real alternatives what what makes a real alternative an alternative I'm Sarah Porter. I'm from New
4: Zealand. I'm a person with lived experience of distress, which um, began for me in my very early childhood, and I was first put on medication as a nine-year-old, and so now I have nearly 30 years' experience of experience of a label, and I regard myself as a person in recovery. I work for an organisation called Well-Linked Trust, and my role in that organisation is called Peer Development Specialist. The problem with the mental health system is that it doesn't take the um, the truth that people speak as being the truth. The idea is that the professionals, the clinicians, whatever you want to call them, know better than I know what's going to work for me. And, and for me that's always been a problem and what I'm working for is a, is a change whereby we can actually trust in what people believe is best for themselves rather than thinking that we always know what's going to be better. I'm really excited to have had the opportunity to be at INTAR. And for me, what's been happening here is it's a a group of people from all around the world who are all interested in finding something different, a more kind of alternative and innovative way to respond that actually honours the experience, that respects the individuals who are having that experience, and that um, looks to provide more useful ways of supporting people to live with some of the distress that's involved with that experience and be able to. Transform that into something that helps us all grow and become better people. Well, what made me want to travel 2,000 miles is because I really wanted to um, talk with people who are doing really innovative and exciting things around the world because I want to actually set up more projects in New Zealand that offer something genuinely different that is not kind of mainstream mental health. It doesn't involve electric shocks. It doesn't involve drugs. What it involves is really deep ways of being with people. I mean, for me, that's really what it's about. It's about finding something that is much more humane and less damaging for people. So, yeah, that's really what I'm passionate about.
5: I'm Jim Gadsden from Anchorage, Alaska, and I do various and nefarious things, one of which is the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, Psych Rights, Another is a peer-run housing program, the community-based alternative program. The other one is Soteria, Alaska. The problem with the mental health system is that it's not helping people. In fact, it's hurting people, and it's creating these huge numbers of people who could get better and on with their lives, who get stuck and become permanently dependent, permanent mental patients, uh, and really... Uh, have much diminished lives because of what the mental health system does, or really it's really a mental illness system. This idea that people have defective brains is totally unproven, and it drives a system that believes that you have to then alter the brain in various ways as a way to deal with what what gets described or categorized as mental illness. And these invariably involve very debilitating Uh, interventions. Most often, or almost universally, it's the psychiatric drugs, which um, are very toxic physically and very debilitating mentally. INTAR itself, which stands for the International Network of Treatment Alternatives to Recovery, is a group of people who have come together around the idea of advancing the knowledge and availability of other approaches or alternatives of ways of dealing with people that have what are termed psychiatric symptoms that are much more helpful to them in the long run, even in the short run, and are not harmful to them. Soteria Alaska is an alternative to what we what we want it to be. It's not in existence yet. Is an alternative to hospitalization. So people that are who are faced. With traditional psychiatric hospitalization, which invariably means psychiatric drugging, whether they want to take it or not, uh, it's for those people who don't want to uh, take the psychiatric drugs or maybe want to decide what psychiatric drugs they would want to take, but primarily for people who don't want to take them or want to get off of them to have a place where they can go and be safe, be helped through uh, whatever processes they need to uh, be helped through, to help work with people on whatever the problems they were having in their lives that created the difficulties and allow them to move on on with their lives. Virtually everybody that I've talked to who's ended up being a psychiatric patient will can tell me what it was that was going on in their life, in the immediate past, that they felt pushed them over the edge. And many people will tell you that they felt there's something in their more distant past, whether it be childhood or maybe a war experience, some kind of traumatic experience, or even a relationship that set them up for it. And they had something that happened that triggered it, and then they became psychotic, is kind of a medical term for it. What Soteria does is just by being with people rather than doing to them and talking with them, trying to understand the experience, Uh, help them work through it, help them work on their problems, that's much more helpful to people. And the name comes from a project in the 1970s by Lauren Mosier and others, Alma Mann and Voice Hendricks, that proved that this method was at least as helpful by the measure of relapses as traditional hospitalization was not really any more expensive and the long-term outcomes were much better for people because they were able to get on with their lives.
6: I'm Judy Schreiber, and my involvement is to try to continue the work of Soteria House. Soteria is a concept and house that my husband, late husband Lauren Mosher, started in 1970 as a research project to prove and work with the fact that uh, psychosocial interventions and relationship were better if not more important than just using medications. Um, The house lasted for uh, uh, several years up to 1980 and the research that he did the initial research proved that people who were kept off neuroleptics at that time for the first six weeks which was the part of the research design actually did the same if not better than the folks in the general hospital who were started on neuroleptics and also that the fact that they were off medications did not hinder them in any way. Uh, it was a small house, home-like setting, it was a small house in San Jose set up to house uh, six to eight residents two staff at a time who were on for 48-hour shifts uh, it was a free-flowing house without the only rules were, I think, if violence got out of hand, there was an incest taboo, so the staff and clients couldn't sleep together. Otherwise, it was a pretty well self-determined household based on the needs of the residents. The folks who were there loved it. Um, the medical establishment hated it because it challenged all of their views about medication in big business and hospitals. And another big piece was using Uh, quote-unquote non-professionals, so it wasn't filled with uh, psychiatrists and or social workers. And the people who were hired were hired because of their interest in, some of them had some uh, psychiatric distress in themselves or their own families, and also people who were interested in doing alternative interventions like yoga, acupuncture, gardening, art. The non-professionals were the staff and their training was on the spot training. So that as issues came up, either Lauren, who was Dr. Mosier, or um, other folks who were in the hierarchy would review the issues and teach people along the way. So the, the wish was, the hope was that people did not come with preconceived notions of how people needed to be treated. The philosophy of what caused mental illness, Dr. Mosier believed that it was a process of growth and that if people could be helped through it and not made. Um, dull by medications that they would learn and grow from it. So Tier House closed because the funding was taken away finally by the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, however, Dr. Mosier went on to start two other houses for folks who were more chronic users of the system but with the same principles of um, the importance of relationships, um, no staff hierarchy, uh, no and as few medications as possible, and uh, the humanness of the environment. And now people are trying again to start some soteri houses al- around the world. There's one in Switzerland, which is a direct replication of the one in uh, San Jose, and that's been going on for 20 years successfully. Lauren Mosher was a psychiatrist who um, got his sort of uh, in- experience and interest in this more when he was in England a year fellowship and uh, studied with Ronald Lang and stayed in and out of Kingsley Hall to learn what Kingsley Hall was about, which was one of the first houses. He also, uh, Lauren, founded and was the head of the Center for the Studies of Schizophrenia at NIMH and founded the Schizophrenia Bulletin. He loved people. His philosophy was people should be allowed to do what they want, should have choices in life, shouldn't be forced into anything. Uh, his philosophy was to be totally non judgmental and accepting. Uh, his phenomenological stance was based on viewing people where they are and starting where they are. And I think also, really importantly, was his belief in the context of where things happen and to start where the person was in real life all the time. Um, in the houses, if someone came in because of their difficulty, the initial idea would be to find out what context the difficulty happened in and then to deal with the context that people did not live in a vacuum. The problems with mental health today are uh, the ascendancy of pharmacological companies in big business, the overuse of medication, um, the overuse of professionalization, and um, not allowing people to be. I mean, his big thing was allowing people to be and being with someone. I wish there were Soterias all over the world so people could do what they wanted and get better.
7: My name's Alma Men, and some people have called me the mother of Soteria House. Lauren Mosier was working in Washington, D.C., and he was interested in uh, setting up a house of this type. And he had a lot of ideas about the theory of what should be done. Decided that it would be good to set it in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was hired to start the whole project. It is a, it is a place where people are interested in in healing through relationship and and looking at human relationships. This was in 1971. To in some sense to replicate Kingsley Hall, R.D. Lang's Kingsley Hall, but in a, in an American way. And uh, whereas Kingsley Hall, no one was paid to be a helper there. There would be paid helpers, and since the patients, quote-unquote, the people who were in in trouble, who came to to be there, were people who knew about the philosophy of R.D. Lang and uh, had some idea that, that this would be useful to them. Instead, we, and also since the NIMH was funding it, We had to show that it was uh, useful by having a a study in which people were randomly assigned either to Soteri House or to community service. I mean, they were in community services. They were entering community services. The first staff that I selected were all high on um, artistic sense. they They were as high as artists on artistic sense but the I looked for people who I thought could be empathetic and uh, I also asked them to see each one to sit for a day in a seclusion room in the uh, acute hospital so I uh, you know I'd arranged with the doctors to let them have one of my people so that they could see how they might feel in those circumstances and they would in turn could could not want to do that for one thing, there were no medications. There were no nurses. There were no signs of a hospital. It was just a house. I forget how many bedrooms, but it's probably six bedrooms. It's a large house with lots of lots of common rooms as well and a garden. But we were right in the city, and uh, we were people. People came to us who were on their way into acute hospitalization, so we had to be prepared to. Uh, relate to them as soon as they came in, and we had to be prepared to. We had to worry about whether they might hurt themselves or hurt us, and so that was the rule: you can't hurt, can't hurt anybody else, and you can't hurt us. Uh, and uh, beyond that, we just tried to, to make a home to satisfy the people that lived there, so that as well as work there, so that the the, the and and the, and the behaviors in the staff, the food that we ate was all things that could be changed to meet the needs of whomever was there. So that um, in general there might be one or two people who were floridly uh, distressed and the rest of the people were behaved pretty normally. There was no doctor to say whether you could go out or not. So whether you went out or not as a person who was in trouble, depended on what that staff person at that moment thought was possible. So you'd say to somebody, no, you can't just go out because you're too distressed and I'm afraid that you wouldn't get into trouble and I want you to stay here. So we did things like uh, if the person said, I'm very upset I got to go home to see my ma, we would take them, we'd say, wait a few minutes and we'll take you and then bring you back. And also it was totally open, so the families could come and be there. So it, I think it was markedly different than uh, a, a usual mental health facility. We found, it, most interestingly, that in the control group, that, that is the folks who didn't come to Soteria, uh, and in the Soteria group, that both groups had had their symptoms subside Within about six weeks, no more, you know, so that we, because we measured them at six weeks, so it's not clear. Uh, but in terms of florid uh, symptoms, those things would be uh, gone. We found that people were able to keep their social relationships with their friends and their families and girl, girlfriends if they had them, because, and, the, you know, their own private doctor, because they were not removed from the community. And we, and What we hoped, and I think we showed, is that people uh, did not become chronic in the same sort of sense. On that, as I say, they were able to leave without medication. They were, we asked them to stay, and they stayed generally uh, as long as they wanted to, but we, we thought a good outcome is to stay until you have something to do during the day, a place to live, and you're not, you're not going to get in trouble. With the the psychiatric police or anything, so yes, so that we, uh, I think we, we, I think we certainly showed that, and we were in a normal community. We certainly had events, not terribly uh, dangerous. Uh, You know, people running out of the house and taking their clothes off and riding a bicycle around the neighborhood, but we were able to to be normal enough that uh, we were not we were not drubbed out of the community. Uh, people still allowed us to to take residents, people in trouble. Clearly, non-drug alternatives, uh, a, a, a resident that can contain and comfort and protect, and not use uh, psychiatric drugs for uh, uh, control, is 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 definitely uh, an improvement over the current uh, way we treat people. One person, you know, had been in and out of hospital not too many years, who uh, came into soteria, um, had been t- having troubles, not you know, not in hospital, went on to, uh, uh, recovered within a few weeks, went on to go to school and get a master's degree and, and set up, run a halfway house in another community. So there's several stories like that. Some people finished medical school. After the psychotic episode, some did not. We had some went on to do something that was less stressful. But uh, pretty much everybody had some kind of a job and some sort of a, a future. And, and these were all people between uh, between eighteen and thirty. So they were all young and young into their initiation into chronicity. And so I think this is the most important thing that we can say is it does impede. Chronic dependence and chronic addiction to uh, mental health systems. I have been t- thrilled uh, with to see how many wonderful things have been uh, initiated in various parts of the world, particularly by uh, uh, users or I don't know what we're calling them these days, consumers, uh, ex-patients. But I think that uh, this it has is really very. Let's put. Let me put it this way. Uh, about ten years ago, I left the field because I was so disgusted with the mental health system, and now I'm very encouraged and energized.
0: Okay, I'm Karen Baker, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I run a family program there. It's called the Family Outreach and Response Program. Families are given these messages of doom and gloom, where um, they're told that their child or loved one has a serious mental illness, chronic ongoing illness, they'll never be able to do whatever it was you had hoped they might do prior to this diagnosis. That they need to take medications for the rest of their lives and that your job is to make sure that they uh, go along with the treatment plan, especially the medication piece. Um, Well, we find that families, uh, especially family organizations, have been quite slow to embrace uh, recovery. As a matter of fact, I think they're quite invested in the biological model of mental illness and uh, therefore do what we consider more damaging things such as uh, fighting for more coercive legislation and uh, we want to undo some of those messages that families have heard and what they've come to believe and what they fight for so um, we teach families that people can recover, they do recover, that there's proof of that. We show them research studies, we have psych survivors come and talk to them, facilitate our work. We teach them new skills and strategies about how they can create a recovery environment at home. And we do individual work with families who are themselves in in extreme distress. I mean, one of the things that we believe, and Intar believes, is that self-determination is a critical component to recovery. And that applies to family as well, so we can't say, you know, um, people in distress are self-determining but then let families uh, have control or or take away that self-determination. Families do not have the right to veto decisions in any form that a person in distress is making. So we believe that families need to understand these concepts of that people, um, all people, have the dignity to fail and the right to risk. And so what that means is even when people are in serious situations, that sometimes um, families need to let the relative be self-determining and maybe make choices that you know the family wouldn't make with the long term view that that's what makes us grow and learn and change is through our decisions whether they're good or or bad ones. I I think that's a painful piece of work though because at the same time we don't want to abandon our loved ones when they're in the most extreme states of distress. So I think it's finding that balance between not abandoning, so being in it still with them when they're in those difficult situations like on the verge of homelessness or uh, using that we don't we don't leave them alone, but we don't try and control the situation either. Uh, it's a painful, difficult situation to watch your family member in distress. When you love somebody, it hurts to see them in situations that they're feeling so distressed. Families need their own help in those times. They need to come together, learn from each other, um, get their own support to know that they too can get through this, and they have
8: their own unique recovery process to go through. My name is Shehnaz Laikal. I'm from Turkey, Istanbul. Right now I work, I represent Mental Disability Rights International in Turkey and I'm also a volunteer of many users organizations in Istanbul. My father was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and he got treatment in the hospitals in Turkey for 30 years maybe. I mean through that I could I visited him a lot and I saw the situation, the conditions. He was overmedicated, you know, all, all the problems that we are familiar with, you know, I lived through them with him. I mean, the main problem in Turkey is there are only state hospitals, nothing else, no community services. He had no place to live, he had to stay in a hotel. And in the hospitals, the most terrible thing, I think, is the unmodified city which means electroshock treatment without anesthesia or muscle relaxants and oxygen. And also he was he used lithium for a long time. And of course it affected his whole body, I could see that. Besides this treatment problems, he went through a lot of economic problems and social stigma issues. Uh, we published a report two months ago, which was published on September 28 which is on the website of mdri.org, where people can download it. And right now, I'm trying to... um, The report summarizes the human rights violations in the psychiatric facilities in Turkey. We did a two-year investigation, visited the various hospitals around Turkey. And right now, I'm trying to bring together people who are supportive of the report and establish a local initiative I think around 40 people were here, from US, Ireland, UK, New Zealand, and Turkey,
9: myself. My name's Paddy McGowan from the Irish uh, Institute for Recovery and Mental Health. We have fostered many, many concepts on this island, the concept of togetherness, in the sense that we were the first one of the first networks of people on this troubled part of the island, on the northern part of Ireland, that were able to bring Catholic and Protestant together. And to have a common, a one common uh, ultimate aim within the psychiatric services was to uh, completely unite us in our, in, our, in our struggle for freedom and for our own self-determination and for our own liberation. So in a time of troubles within our own country, we were able to find our own inner peace through our own experiences. The entire last year was probably one of the best weekends of my life in a lot, a lot, of many ways. As I said, I have 20 years Doing this within Europe, and for me in the early days, 20 years ago, I was part of that debate. I was part of that argument. I was as part of that fight. My my role, or as I thought my role in those days, were was to get as many people on the survivor side to fight the family side, because I sort of blamed the family for everything. They had to be part of everything, because they colluded with the system. They colluded with psychiatry. They were the very people that kept me locked in in a locked ward for 10 years. and I blamed the family. The reality was that my family was damaged by psychiatry every bit as much as I was. The second part of it was that I damaged my family because of my belief systems that were so tight that I wouldn't allow uh, the family involvement within it. So I I had to start somewhere along the line starting to realise that I was part of the problem. If I was part of the problem, I had to be part of the solution. And if if that applied to me, it also applied to my family. So I think the process that I entered was trying to really start to understand my family again. It has taken a long number of years, but we're getting there. We're nowhere near where we should be, but we're getting there. 20 years ago when I started, you weren't allowed to talk about advocacy within a mental health system. It just wasn't allowed. In fact, in the early days, I spoke at two conferences on this island and was taken off the stage after both conferences and section, taken back into hospital because of my views. That has changed. Them days have gone. Uh, We were part of getting rid of those days. A number of years ago, I was working as an advocate in a hospital ward in, in a rural part of Ireland, and the consultant, on, uh, on, uh, the, the, there was a lady in it, she'd been there for 17 years, she'd been on the ward for 17 years, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia had all these delusions of so-called around aliens and this everything she was consumed by aliens everything she'd done was was driven by this alien uh, paranoia as the doctor talked about but anyway her consultant retired and moved on and a new consultant took on her case and he had run through her case notes that were there for years and he just could not make sense of what was going on uh so he asked me about to spend some time with her we'll call her mary the first week i went into Mary I sat from eight o'clock in the morning when the shift come on to eight o'clock at night and she never spoke tuesday eight o'clock in the morning eight o'clock at night and she never spoke wednesday well on eight o'clock in the morning and i think it was about 12 or half 12. there's a debate around it i think about 12 people that were near me at the time said it was half twelve, one o'clock whenever she spoke i don't i don't know i was lost in time she looked up on the bed she sat up in the bed and she turned around to me and she says you're not going to go away are you And I said uh, she she caught me because I wasn't expecting her to speak to me to be truthful I wasn't expecting her to speak to me so the only answer I could give her was not unless you tell me to and she didn't tell me to go away so we sat the rest of the day through the 8 o'clock at night Thursday I think it was about two or three o'clock in the evening she sat up in the bed and she says uh, I'd love to go outside so me being stupid and naive I said so sure we'll go and this woman's in her pajamas Uh, she hadn't had her own clothes for years because there was no need she was never getting outside so we went up uh i went up to the staff and uh, cocky as i was and self-assured and says i'm taking mary outside and the staff no fucking way you're not you're not going outside because if you go outside she'll run and we're not running after so we were in a debate around this and the consultant happened to walk across and uh he's coming across the floor and he says what's the problem so we outlined outlined what it was. And he says, sure, take her, take her outside, your If she runs, we'll run after her. That's what we're paid for. So we got her clothes gathered up and got her straightened up and got her hair done and she put a bit of makeup on and footed about for a while. But eventually she got to the door. And as she was getting to the door, you could see that she was visibly disturbed. Everything was, uh, you could see every expression on her. was consu- She was consumed with fear. And I thought, stupidly the fear was around not being outside for that length of time and it was agoraphobia and all the rest but it was as the story unveiled it become more clear why but as we got outside and we were going to her out through the doors and when she was come out through the door but two foot through the door she stopped dead and i said to her what's happening what's wrong mary she says they're everywhere and i says what's everywhere what she says the aliens they're everywhere and I reached down with my foot to the ground like that. And I says, is that one there? And she says, do you see them too? And I says, yeah, there's one. There's another one over there. So she started to lift herself. So we headed on out to the grass. And you have to think of this. It's a rural, one of the old Victorian hospitals in Ireland. But it's grass all around the front of it. You know, it's a beautiful sight of a place. It's just a wrong place. To, a wrong hospital to be on the, such a beautiful site. Or the wrong type of an institution. So... The staff were standing in the ward looking out the window watching us. So the two of us was running around the front of this psychiatric unit kicking and destroying aliens because that's what she wanted to do. And uh, as you know I've bothered with the chest and have had for many years when I was smoking at the time. Uh, the asthma kicked in so I lay down and I fell and i dirtied dirty the knees of my trousers and I lay down in the grass I just and Mary ran on, kicked and roared and shouted. So a while later she dropped about six feet from me and we started to talk and asked her what what was happening you know what was it all about and to shorten the story i don't do it justice by shortening it but to shorten it uh mary told me her story mary told me how she'd become a psychiatric patient at the age of 17 she was raped and the process of the rape become pregnant and because she lived within a family structure that was Driven by very very strict principles of, of Christianity, she was made having an abortion. Now that's the the, the paradox for me was that within Christianity, abortion shouldn't be part of. But the reality is it was easier to do that than than bring this child up in, in a society that everybody knew everybody. So she was made having an abortion. Shortly after that, uh, Mary was admitted to a psychiatric unit, and that's where I picked her up years later. Because the story was as simple as, for me, once we got into it, was that the aliens, you know, she talked about the, the aliens were inside her, they were outside her, they were everywhere, and the only way she could describe her story was around that, that whole rape, and for her, the, alien, the aliens inside her was the fact that her child was stripped from her. She never had no choice over that. She had no, it was just done. And then on top of that, then to end up in a psychiatric system, society then punished her. For being the victim of a violent rape that she had no way of protecting herself from, and then for society then just to devalue her, to dismiss her, to punish her, and to lock her away in a psychiatric hospital and call her crazy, for me showed in humanity that people that humanity can have in another defenceless human being. The only thing about it is Mary has moved on. We, We went into a recovery process and we worked our way through it. She worked her way through it. She's now married. I stood, she gave birth to twin children, I stood for those children a few years ago. She's living in England, happy, contented. She still has her demons, she still has her aliens, but she knows what they're about, she knows how to live with them, they've come to an acceptance of each other, and she's a happier woman than she was a number of years ago here. That's the type of stuff we're involved in, it's just not rocket science, it's just about two human beings being able to sit down, One, not judging the other person by any shape, size or form. People say to me, is there any such thing as aliens? I don't know, things like that. I don't understand things like that. All I know is that I believe what people tell me. And I believe with what... If they tell me, you know, that I worked with a fellow one time who told me he was toot and Everybody else said he wasn't. Every morning I met him, I addressed him as toot and I shook hands with him. And that relationship goes on to this day. But it's driven by him. He tells me what I need to know.
10: And it's built out of respect. Well, I'm Mats Jesperson uh, from Sweden. I'm uh, working in our survivor organization since uh, 16 years. The problem with the mental health system—that's uh, a lot of problems. For, for me, personally, it was really this mental ill concept which I couldn't understand. Which I thought was so ridiculous. If you really think it is a mental illness, we have some biochemical courses then of course you develop all this with you have a, to have a hospital you have to have a doctor records pills and so on but if you question this basic this fundamental idea of, of uh, mental illness of the medical model then you have to find another way and you develop other ways of dealing with it and to to help people or support people to be mad i usually use that what i like this old world mad madness instead of psychiatric illness or, or psychosocial disability or whatever I like to call it madness and to be mad is for me to be in, in a jungle and a jungle is a dangerous place, there's no map there's no road in it, you don't know really how to get out of it and it's very dangerous to be there and you have, in some way you happen to enter into it and what psychiatrists is trying to do is they're trying to protect you by building a wall around you in the middle of the jungle by medicines or by other measures and that doesn't work very well because it breaks down but, and it's also very, not very good because then you have to stay in the middle of the jungle in this little enclosure. And uh, the psychologists, they want to map the way you have into the jungle and that could sometimes be helpful but often they don't know much about the way out. They don't have much advice to, to, to find the way out. And uh, so my alternative is really to have a companion who doesn't actually have a map. But it's better to go with somebody else than to, to move yourself, and to find, try to find a way out. And this companion could be a person who have had that experience, something similar himself. And the most important in my model is that you accept the, the where these people have entered the jungle, where he is. You must accept that and go to that place instead of try, trying to draw this person out of the jungle or out of the madness or whatever you call it and accept from the first in the first instance you accept where this person is it may be he is here it might be he's on another planet he may be in, in a conspiracy with a secret police or, or whatever it is you accept that because that, that is where he or she is and then you go together to try to find a way out of it of course we know a lot about this uh, side effect and risks especially in the long term we know about that but uh, for me myself it was mostly a psychological problem with medic- medication. Now I was in this lucky state that the medication had no at all positive effect on me. Because if it had had that, if it had made some release for me, for my suffering, I would surely have accepted it. But it, it's, the psychological problem is then, at least for me, that then I would have stayed on that because. I had some relief from my pain, from my suffering, and that's everybody wants to have that. If you have a suffering and pain, and if you feel that, you continue with that. But as I didn't have any benefit of the medicines, they were just negative effects. I throw them away, and I'm very lucky of that because uh, the pain on the, uh, or the um, suffering or the anxiety, anxiety what they call in English, anxiety, you have it's not. It has a p- also a purpose, it is a driving force. And if you take that away, you take a, a way away a part of the driving force of, for you to search for the way out. So even if I was suffering, because my suffering at that time was, it was really terror, 24 hours of terror. So it's nothing you want to, to choose to be in. But happily enough, there was no solution with medications. So the only way was to continue. And the suffering, forced me to continue until I found a way out of it. For me, it was when I was reading the mystic, John of the Cross, 16th century mystic, Spanish mystic, his name is in Spanish, Juan de la Cruz. And he gave a description of my uh, experiences during my madness, which was clear, which I could accept. It was really the the description I was looking for. And he also put it into a way, a, a journey, where you go through the darkness, through the night, to to another level. And that was the help for me because in a very short time then my so-called incurable disease disappeared.
11: Okay, My name is Sabine Dick and I work for an association that is running the runaway house which is an explicitly anti-psychiatric facility in in Berlin. It's a crisis shelter and we offer support and also um, withdrawal from psychiatric drugs. We work explicitly anti-psychiatric, which means we don't make use of psychiatric diagnosis or terms or the notion that goes along with it. While well, most of the residents do come to the house, all of them have had some bad experience with psychiatry or psychiatrists. Half of the staff as survivors themselves, which does make a great difference in working with people, health system. And this is why we turn to the homelessness sector and, and now are funded by this.
12: My name is John McCarthy. I am the public relations officer in a voluntary capacity with the Cork Advocacy Network. I'm also a member of Mind Freedom International. I live every day with the normality of madness. And I had a, a breakdown, I, I went nuts, I I go around trying to change things uh, in every way I can. What is wrong is that there's a friend of mine at the moment on her 73rd readmission to a hospital in Cork uh, and this day four nurses are going to hold her down and forcefully interject her with, inject her with Haldol which is giving her tardive dyskinesia which for those of you that mightn't know that because up to very recently I didn't know what that was, is the shakes, and she drools at the mouth, and she shuffles when she walks, and there's nothing whatsoever physically wrong with this because when this woman is not receiving this medication, I dance with her. Uh, now she can't talk to me because she's in such a comatose state because what's been forced on her, by the way, legally legally under the mental health system and the mental health acts in this country and in your country and in countries right across the western world we just need to state that this is wrong and therefore it has to stop and it's my firm belief that if it does stop the alternatives will be found very quickly because now they don't have the convenience of forced medication I've been hugely energized by, by this weekend because you are in the process of setting up the alternatives we talked out all sorts of issues we spent hours and I, I think it's important that your listeners understand that most people are here over this weekend they've traveled enormous distances and nobody's been paid and if you're out there and you're living with the problem of madness there's a lot of people out there working on your behalf for nothing Uh, And it's an issue, I suppose, that we need to look at it in some constructive way that the people that we're trying to force to change have huge resources behind them, whereas we're working from an absolutely nil base of resources in finance. But we beat them because we have a greater resource in heart and it's coming from a different place. Uh, And that's what was so positive and so powerful about this weekend, to see the passion that people have. Because they know what they're doing is right. Yeah, I started writing poetry when I went mad, you know. Um, and and if, if you're out there listening to this somewhere and, and you're saying it's, uh, that's very offensive to say this, please realise that society has stolen the concept and the word madness from us. And they have no right, sorry, they have no right to steal it from us. Um, and there's nothing wrong with being mad. What's wrong is the concept people have put around being mad. Uh, because, you see, the the people that I met in the so-called asylums of this country when I was in them, and I spent a year in them, in silence, in absolute silence, were the most intelligent, sensitive, wonderful people you could possibly imagine. And like, the insanity is that we're locking up the wrong people. We should be locking up the people who are signing us into these places and not the people who are going into them. I'm going to go on a bit now, but here we go. Do you see, the, the Maori in New Zealand have a little system running, yeah? And I love this thought that if somebody in the community goes ape, goes nuts, gets a psychotic attack, whatever label you want to put on it, it, just goes off the rails. The chief calls the community together, the tribe together, and says, what did we do? To cause this guy to react like this. What does the community do here? Lock that bastard up as fast as you can. Because he's going to cause us fierce damage. And it ain't our responsibility. We didn't do anything. We haven't done anything. But of course the community has. Of course the community has. So if there's another little effort to be made out there. It's to change the community's attitude towards their responsibility for what's going on. Um, And I'm not even going to get into the drugs business. Because that's... I mean... The drugs companies spend two billion to my knowledge every year on marketing. On marketing. So if they've got two billion to go out there and expound that cause, nobody's going to take any notice of what I say about whether it's right or wrong. So we have other avenues to work on that I think that are much more important than to be fighting the drugs issues. Ma'am and, and, and like if you're taking drugs and they're working for you, the blessings of God on you. But please, please, please stop arguing with the people Who are out there talking for the people that they don't work for because you see we're not out there fighting for you if it works for you we're fighting for the guy who spends 50 years in the mental institution because they've taken his soul and they've taken his life and that's the guy we're out there fighting for so if you're out there and you're happy with the drugs stay quiet do your own thing Nobody's arguing with you. Nobody's insisting you come off the drugs. I'm arguing with the fact that I spent eight years shuffling around the walls of mental hospitals in this country because they nearly killed me and they nearly stole my soul. So don't tell me that I can't talk out about them because you're happy with them. Be happy with them and let me do what I need to do to stop other people being unhappy with them. I may get a bit emotional reading this and if I do that's okay. And the thing that happened to me when I went through madness is that I learned that it's okay to be emotional. Um, And the the one thing that society does, it takes away that right. I used to wear a pinstripe suit, a red tie, a shirt, shiny black shoes, carry a briefcase, go to the office every day. I was a so-called successful businessman. Now I have a ponytail and I write poetry and I love it guys, you should try it sometime. So if I get emotional, that's okay. Because this is about a guy this is about a guy that every time I flag and every time I get tired, and I'm tired now because this was a very emotional weekend, I think about Michael. Because Michael, I met Michael in hospital, and Michael was locked up for 50 years of his 73 years of life. And when when um, when Michael died, I went down to the hospital to collect his body, to, to give him a decent burial. And I arrived at 1 o'clock in the morning. Michael had been dead for six hours. He was still in the public ward. Twelve elderly men, some of them in nothing but incontinent nappies, all suffering from emotional distress. And the man's body had been in amongst them for six solid hours, and they were in none of them in bed, none of them totally agitated. The staff were down having a cup of tea. Michael was laid out in the bed. And the nurse said to me, it might be better if you didn't pull back the sheet. And I insisted on pulling back the sheet because I wanted to see my friend. And I did pull back the sheet. And they had Michael's head tied onto the back of the metal frame bed with a dirty bandage looped through a roll of toilet paper. And it was the perfect example and metaphor for the shite way they had treated him all his life. And they were going to bury him in a pauper's grave because, you see, nobody loved Michael. And there was nothing wrong with Michael, no more than there was wrong with me. But I was lucky enough to have somebody who loved me. And that's why I'm talking to you today. And that's why Michael is dead today. And that's why Michael spent 50 useless years locked up by a system that's uncaring. And it has to stop. It simply has to stop. So this is Michael. Michael slopes along, hands rigid at his side, feet shuffled, teeth gap. Gapped eyes staring wide, smile fixed, praying. Michael remembers 40 years ago, lunch forgotten. I didn't like Joe in 47, he never get to heaven. Tried to give him advice once, he snapped at me. Your father was a nice man, visit me in St. Dan, regular. He's dead now, did you know? How's your mother? How's business? You're well. Michael slopes along, straw hat minus donkey's bite. This summer now, you know, we'll sing a sing-along. Your turn. No mine. Faith of our father's living still. My living still in heaven, in hell. Michael queues every day for breakfast and a pill. For lunch and a pill. For tea and a pill. Michael is compliant. He's good. No trouble, oh Michael. Nobody talks to Michael, so he prays to the virgin and child. He has none. Michael is a conversationalist. How's your mother? How's business? You're well. Michael is a steady lad. He has a fixed abode. Been resident for 50 years. In situ. Stagnant. Stagnating. Without care. In care. Careless. Scholarship forgotten. First in Ireland. our Michael. Michael travelled to Yarl and to gron and London. He's proud of that. Lost a brother or he lost him. Father played trumpet blind in a band. Mother made cold cabbage sandwiches. There was no ham. Michael slopes along. Heading for Cars Hill. Who remember Michael? Will you? What about for talk is Michael? How's your mother? How's business? You're well. Thanks. As you see, there was nothing wrong with Michael. Michael had sadness in his life, so they locked him up for life for having been unhappy. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful man. And they locked him up for the rest of his life. And that has to just stop.
13: My name is uh, Leon Redler. I'm I'm an American by birth, a New Yorker, and uh, I came to the UK, to London, in 1965, uh, having completed uh, two years of a psychiatric residency uh, in uh, Manhattan to work with R.D. Lang, actually with Maxwell Jones and then R.D. Lang, and I continued working with Lang for many years and never came back to the States. And I've been involved in setting up households, places of asylum and refuge for people in mental distress where when people wanted a place to be, but a safe place to be, but found it difficult or impossible to find a, such a refuge or asylum within the conventional system. One of the things I would like to see come out of this gathering is more people around the world in their own ways in different ways that are in sync with the cultures that they live in form places of asylum and refuge for people in mental distress without having to diagnose them according to current psychiatric thinking or other thoughtlessness that's called the uh, diagnostic uh, dsm-4 or whatever more people to uh, uh, be able to relate to our fellow creatures with uh, some wisdom and compassion and openness and just allow that we all in this cr- crazy world often uh, are distressed and uh, that the best ways to deal with this are in a heart-to-heart, open-hearted way and not in some technological way and uh, maybe begin to transform the world to a more uh, compassionate and just place by starting with this basic sort of stuff.
1: You've been listening to interviews with participants from last year's International Network for Treatment Alternatives for Recovery Conference in Killarney, Ireland. For more information about INTAR, check out intar.org. And that's about all the time we have this week for Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, go to our website, freedom-center.org.